Welcome to the Urban Echo Podcast, an exploration into sound and its relationship to stress in cities through the lens of design. My name is Oscar Schweig. My guests today are Graham Dove and Marie Franchette. Graham Dove is a researcher and designer at Sonic at NYU's Tandon School. Sonic, or Sounds of New York City, is a lab focused on large-scale noise monitoring and leverages the latest in machine learning technology, big data analysis, and citizen science reporting to more effectively monitor, analyze, mitigate noise pollution. Brie Franchette is an urban planner working in finance and commerce department as a principal project manager in St. Paul, Minnesota, and has experience with implementation of noise mitigation strategies and is an advocate for passive housing. Passive housing is a voluntary standard for energy efficiency in buildings, which reduces the building's ecological footprint. How did you become an urban planner and what drew you to that field? Well, I guess I was aware of the general profession because my father was in urban planning. And when I was an undergraduate, it seemed like something interesting to do. I was trying to pick a major. They didn't actually have an undergraduate major in urban planning. So I went in, I studied urban geography. And where was this? At Madison, Wisconsin. And then I, when I graduated, I moved to Chicago and just started working in urban redevelopment in communities in Chicago, you know, worked in some economic development, construction, trade, training program, and, and housing redevelopment. And what was that experience like being new to the field? I learned a lot about local politics in Chicago. And I learned about the importance of fundraising for community development organizations. And I just learned a lot about how the system works, how development works. I had studied development finance in college, but then I started, you know, working on projects and learning more about development finance. My area of expertise is mostly in redevelopment finance. Um, not so much per se planning, urban planning, although I have had that title in the past, but I'm more of a project manager type. And over the years, how have you interacted with sound in these multiple roles? It's a regulatory issue when federal funds are involved in developments in, in housing. Sound is a, is a regulatory issue and we're required to do environmental impact studies on major projects and that is because sound can have a detrimental impact on people so for example you can't locate housing within a certain distance from a railroad line and i worked on a project that was located facing fairly near a freeway and so we had to make sure that the windows had extra high quality um, soundproofness to them to meet the HUD standards. So it's it's kind of a regulatory issue with federal funds. I've also um, encountered soundproofing for just market rate projects. In wood construction, they use special sound reduction materials in the floors to minimize the sound. Have you seen a lot of evolution in that regulatory system in regards to sound, or has it mostly been the same over the years? I personally am not aware of evolution in it. 
I think the practice has evolved in terms of the market rate deals just because it's something they, they wanted to have in their buildings so they can keep their tenants happy. So I think products have been evolving that they can use. What's the incentive for a developer to put in these soundproofing materials or to take this seriously? Well, because it makes people more comfortable and they won't want to move out. They'll be able to keep their tenants. The condominium market has been pretty bad here for a while, but it's also an issue for condominiums when you're selling property, a, a condominium. A lot of times I think if it's a concrete building, that's the best for soundproofing. But if it's a wood building, then you got to do more to soundproof. So any kind of savvy buyer would, would be concerned about soundproofing. That leads to my next question. Are there specific things or materials that are, have been implemented over the years to curb this in urban planning or requirements made? You can buy windows. Uh, there's some. There's a standard for the soundproof quality of windows. So you can specify what rating you need on the windows. I mean, there's a limit as to how good their soundproofing can get in a double window, for example. And so those kind of technologies, I think, are evolving in terms of how soundproof they can make these windows. And then I couldn't tell you exactly what materials they're using in the floors right now. An architect might be able to tell you that. Does Ramsey County sort of have an advantage on soundproofing because of the weather there also, and that you're insulating for the cold as well as sound? Just to clarify, I work for the city of St. Paul, which is located within Ramsey County. But we use a lot of the same funding sources and have a lot of the same regulations. Any kind of insulation in the walls is going to help reduce sound. So in general, I would say, yeah, the houses in this area are more soundproof than somewhere probably down south where they're not insulating the walls. I don't know in the floors if it doesn't necessarily help floor. If it's in an apartment building, it's the exterior walls where you you find more of that heavier insulation that makes sense and of course storm windows too also mitigate sound which we don't have in warmer climates can you speak about the airport mitigation project in terms of mitigating sounds for flight paths they're over residential neighborhoods so for the houses in the flight path they offer a couple of different choices and one of the options is to install air conditioning in your house central air so that in the summer you can keep your windows closed so you don't have to open up your windows to get cool air at night. You can run your air conditioning, which is not terribly sustainable. The other thing they offered, which we did on some of our windows, is they will take the the interior portion of your window and they reline it with this some kind of rubberized plastic liners so that there's a seal around your window, which mitigates the sound. So those are the two main things. And about how big has that project been or was that project? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty large, maybe 40 square blocks or 60 square blocks are impacted by it. And they've done over a series of years. The project applied to commercial buildings as well or only residential? I don't know. I think it's only residential probably. I know you're also an advocate for passive housing. Can you explain how kind of you discovered that and what your trajectory has been in implementing it, but also being an advocate for it? I discovered it through my husband, who's an architect. (laughs) So I learned about it from him. 
And then I, I learned about, a, there was an architect developer out east, Temple University, Tim McDonald's name. And he was starting up an effort to try and get different state housing redevelopment authorities to provide incentives to developers to build passive housing. So, And he did a bunch of studies that showed that it didn't cost that much more to build passive house than to do regular construction. So it just makes common sense that that's the kind of construction we should be doing now because it's very has very simple principles, you know, sealing the building, insulating the building, getting rid of heat thermal heat bridges and designing it to maximize solar gain. And you can drastically reduce the amount of energy required for a passive house. It's just way better than existing code. And not only do you save energy with these houses, you also block a lot of sound because of the insulation. There's some environmental benefits to passive house, which is super quiet because they're very high insulated and they're super sealed. So there's no you know, leakage, which can also be leakage of sound, air, air leakage, no sound leakage. Pretty much in this climate, anyways, you have to have triple pane windows in order to achieve the level of efficiency so that those also block sound. And they also happen to be incredibly comfortable because because they're so well sealed and the triple pane windows, they don't have any drafts. So you get kind of an even flow of, of heat. And they also are really super good for anybody who has asthma because you have a constant heat exchange system so that there's a, a system whereby they constantly exchanging airflow because it's a, it's a super sealed building. So you have to bring in fresh air and as you bring in the fresh air, it's heated with the heat already in the building and then recycles that heat as the air comes in and goes out. And I wonder also if it reduces sound complaint within residential buildings. About 40% of the complaints in New York are residential. And so it's about, it's the total amount of complaints in 2018 were 1,048,000. Um, and so that's a fairly significant number. <laughs> and if there's a way to reduce that, it seems like this passive housing would be a way to kind of cancel that. That's a good point to think about, though, because for passive house, it's reducing noise from the outside. But oftentimes, I think some of the sound problems are from somebody above or below you. And that's where using sound barrier materials in the floors is really important and probably in the walls, too. I haven't seen specific material being used in walls to block sound, but I have seen it in floors. They use it in the floors. You know, I think so you don't have to hear people walking. Interesting to see if residential sound complaints in St. Paul went down after the program started to be implemented. Do you have a hard time explaining sound and its importance to people? Or do most of the people you work with usually understand it as an aspect of urban planning? Most planners, most... People in development understand it. I, and I think from a common sense perspective, most people understand sound and how it can impact people because we all experience it. So I've never had a problem explaining it to people in terms of regulations or strategies to deal with sound. But it, it really is something that it's done on a finer grain basis when you're actually building a building and the materials you're using or when you're locating a building and you're looking at what the federal regulations are. And what about when working with architects? There, there are acoustical consultants 
that you actually hire to address these issues. Mountains out there who specialize in this. And in part, when you're doing like a theater or a, you know, a place where you're having music performed, you'll want to have an acoustical consultant to make sure the space is designed to maximize the quality of the sound, which is different than mitigating sound, but they also do you know, consulting on how to mitigate sound. Sound is a regulatory issue for cities in terms of outdoor events. For um, outdoor concerts and outdoor sporting events, you know, with the St. Saint Paul Saints baseball stadium, for example, there's certain rules about what kind of noise levels they can get to. And with the new uh, Minnesota United soccer stadium. And are there different regulations for the buildings that are built around them in terms of sound? No, because they're not emitting, emitting sounds into the environment. There's no code. I mean, buildings generally don't make sound unless they're, they have an entertainment or sporting facility. But there is regulation on patio bars and stuff like that in some areas. Um, like in the uptown neighborhood, I know there was some of the neighbors were really complaining about some of the patios. And there's certain regulatory, like you can't have one within, and if it's too close to a residential property, you can't have an outdoor patio. So there are those kind of sound issues. In fact, I have a friend who owns a very, very old home in St. Paul, and there's an Italian restaurant next to her that, and they have their parking lot right next to her house. And they would love to do an outdoor patio right there, but she doesn't want them to do that. And they can't, they can't do it without her permission. The NYU lab I worked with in New York, one of the people I talked to his insights was that bars are pretty good at keeping their noise inside, but it was the, the customers there that once they left, it was hard to control that. And that it, like the bar could do everything it could. That goes on to my next question of, so we're in kind of a place where, I don't know, is it, do you guys have a shelter in place order in Minneapolis right now? Mm-hmm. And what's that experience been for you and what's has your sonic experience been nice you know i think the quiet the lack of airplanes is really nice sort of focus on sounds you notice inside your home yeah i mean i I think you do have to negotiate it a little more about sound and do you think this will affect sounds after covid19 I think it'll affect the way we live in that I think a lot more people are going to be working from home a lot more. And so you end up having to, when you are home and other people are working, you have to be aware of the sound that you're making. So being a little bit more considerate of your sound and whether or not your door is open or shut. And so I think that will continue over, kind of being sensitive about how your sound affects others. If you're designing a kind of utopian city or something from scratch with little to no restriction, what would it sound like for you? Well, I love the sound of running water. So to the extent you can daylight creeks and streams, because I think that's a really soothing sound and also visually to have running water through your, through your neighborhood. Protecting residential areas from large arterial streets that are noisy, I think, is always really important. Give it a more neighborhood feel. Yeah, and making priority for pedestrian and bike traffic, not you know, not just car traffic. And I think if we start building more energy efficient housing, the houses in general should be quieter. You know, all buildings should be quieter as a, as a, as an impact if you start doing more highly insulated buildings with more highly insulated windows. There's a neighborhood There's a neighborhood in Heidelberg, I think, Germany, 
a suction that is everything in it is built to passive health standard. And then what type of sounds are you most drawn to in cities now? And why are these important? I'm drawn to sounds of birds. <laughs> Maybe because I've been walking along the creek. And I'm also drawn to sounds of people, you know. I think we like to be in social spaces where other people are that have some vitality to them. Those are the kind of sounds that I like. Thank you so much, Marie. That was Marie Frenchette, an urban planner for St. Paul, Minnesota. My next guest is Graham Dove, a researcher at NYU Sonic Labs. My own background is more in interaction design. So I've, I've been here on the project for a couple of years. The project, the genesis of the project has been going for sort of four or five years. And so Sonic comes from the perspective of large-scale Internet of Things. Yeah. Um, so a sensor network to record um, sound pressure level, um, decibels, but also to record audio for machine learning in order to do selected sound source identification. One of the lessons we've learnt is that large-scale network monitoring isn't necessarily the most effective method for gaining insight into noise in the city. So we're actually... Well, because scale, literally because of, of, of scale. The reason why machine learning is, a, is an interesting approach is because it allows you to do things more at scale. Um, but it's also a, a scale is then drawback yeah. for getting to that stage. Like you need um, a recording device on every corner, essentially. It, it, so, so, so we're looking at much more focused things now. Um, where and, and in this way we can apply machine learning to, to smaller problems. We've learned more about how the city agencies respond. They respond to problems that are locally situated and that temporarily variant. You know, can so you give they, me an example? So, yeah, so, I mean, it's particular construction sites may be problematic for the period either where they're breaking ground and pile driving or, or maybe as it gets higher, you know, there, yeah, there are a number yeah. of different circumstances in, in which. Yeah. So, so particular noise is geographically located and yeah. temporally located. So specific noise problems tend to be as well, yeah. although they are also geographically and temporarily spread. But each one of those is a different specific problem. And for the city agencies, they respond to specific problems. So they they send uh, officers to to respond to complaints. And they're all about, they're a complaint made by a certain person at a certain time about a certain noise in a certain place. So we're beginning to think about it in terms of monitoring particular projects. So so potentially monitoring particular construction projects um, or particular mitigation efforts that might be made around construction is a. It's one of the the, the biggest com- sources of noise, com- or the one of the biggest noise sources of noise complaint outside of neighbours. So, so yeah, so construction another area is kind of the nighttime economy. That's that's an interesting, complicated one. We are looking at some projects around monitoring the noise. Because now a lot of bars and venues, actually, they're very good at keeping the the noise they create inside. The secondary noise they create when people leave and much more of a problem for people that live in the vicinity. So we're beginning to talk about how we might be able to contribute to monitoring that. But largely construction sites, they're not like traffic. They don't move. 
they generate a lot of complaints and if you look around after hours variances yeah. you'll see how that is one of the biggest complaints no, no, so on a personal level you'll find that but that's that's yeah. a little bit about what we are and, and where we're getting to we are in terms of how even with regards we're starting working with the agencies we have been working with the DEP the Department of Environmental Protection for a little while we're getting closer to yeah. working with them how they might interpret and use the data like we have a, people? we have a thing we collect is actionable okay. um, we're looking at ways to as you say to inform they can be better informed when they go and make visits to sites because even for the the DEP they are more interested in reducing the source of problems than ticketing and fining people. They'd rather get something fixed yeah. on a visit than have to make endless visits for someone and them, and you know. Process rather than... Yeah, it is so we are looking out ways in which we can usefully put ourselves into that process. Yeah, informative reports for them. Potentially informative, yeah, or um, interactive tools, or it's, it's kind of how they want to understand it. There will be a process of understanding and potentially helping them rethink about some of their processes yeah. were the kind of sensors that we have to be more widespread or to be used in a wider sense will become a wider project. Because it's a behavioural problem. Right. It's also not necessarily about providing data that doesn't change the way... When you put a new tool or new data into a work situation, it's going to have some impact on how that work is or could be done. That change to work is often an overlooked factor the initial thought is that you can just support what is going on currently and that, that's yeah. the primary the, way in through that you begin yeah. to learn everybody begins to learn more about their processes they're turning the data collection into a tool essentially yes yeah. so so we've always been quite applied project and so it is it's a research project that is in part at least a tool to to help the city. What the biases might be in terms of informing design? Or... In terms of in the data that gets collected? Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. Well, we know that there are so many multiple factors involved in this. I mean, weather has a, has a large impact. I mean, in terms of if you're just collecting sound pressure uh, level data, I mean, distance. Yeah. Bird flapping its wings sitting on top, yeah. uh, right on top of a I... sensor, is probably going to be way louder um, than someone jackhammering. So it's understanding the reasons why the machine learning is, is interesting because the, the the machine learning can can give us a sense of what it is that's causing the sound. Sometimes it potentially in kind of multiple levels. So it can it, it will be able to identify sound sources regardless of things like distance. What we would expect to get from machine learning, A, is so you can imagine jackhammering at different distances will have very different profile in terms of um, sound pressure level or decibel level. But there should be there should be common features that makes it recognizable uh, as to a machine learning system. So it should be able to be classified as jackhammering regardless of distance. distance. And whether there are a lot of ifs and buts. It's it's to do with the features in the audio. So it's to do with the structure of the audio files. So weather effect is wind, rain, wind, yeah, yeah. Okay, although it's everywhere, on a sensor, yeah, it's right on top of it, 
rain, it's likewise, although it's everywhere, it's actually also right on top of the sensor. So it hits it right away. So it has a zero distance effect, basically. It can muffle more just snow in particular can really muffle distant sound. And it actually works even just for you sitting in your apartment. It's a, I mean, if it's a snowy day, it makes them appear quieter. So it kind of has the double positive. It's, it's one of those things where the, the interaction between all these is very strong. And so it's very strong from an analysis perspective as well as from a lived experience perspective. That was Graham Dove, a researcher at NYU Sonic Labs. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. I'd like to thank Rose Pember and Shane Carter for their support on the project, and Dan Yap for composing our intro music. <laughs>